Hello, and welcome to Trek in Time, the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. What I mean by that is that we're going to take a look at each episode of Star Trek in chronological order, and we're going to take a look at all the things that were going on in our time at the time of original broadcast. And we're also going to take some deeper dives into the episodes. Now, you're probably wondering who is this that's taking this deeper dive. It's me. Hi. (laughs) I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer, and my books include some stories with genre elements that are sci-fi-ish. And with me is my brother, Matthew. And Matthew is a tech guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell. He takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. And we are both long-time, lifetime Trek heads. Nerd! (laughs) That's us. So today we're going to be talking about the second episode of the show Enterprise in chronological order. This is the second oldest. And this episode originally broadcast on October 3rd, 2001. And now we'll take a quick look in the Wayback Machine at what the world was like when this episode aired. For the second week in a row, Alicia Keys' Fallen was still the top song. And listeners from our first episode might remember that the (laughs) classic Keanu Reeves movie uh, (laughs) about a baseball coach was the number one film. But neither of us remembered. (laughs) Neither of us remembered. (laughs) It was replaced this week by Don't Say a Word, which is another movie that I I have no recollection of. It's a 2001 American crime thriller starring Michael Douglas, Brittany Murphy, and Sean Bean, based on the novel Don't Say a Word by Andrew Clavin. It's directed by Gary Fletter and written by Anthony Pickman and Patrick Smith Kelly. And in looking back at this, it just made me a little sad for Brittany Murphy, who passed away due to pneumonia. Oh. And that was many years ago at this point, but she was one of those actresses who appeared to be a rising star. She was getting a lot of credit and getting more and more work and seemed to be very talented. And then she passed away. And not too long after, her her husband then passed away as well mm-hmm. due to similar complications. When this episode aired on October 3rd, some of the competition that it was up against in television included the classic My Wife and Kids, which it took me a little bit of a deep dive into Wikipedia to remember that I did remember that this show actually existed. My <laughs> Wife and Kids was an American sitcom that ran on ABC from March 28th, 2001 to May 17th, 2005. It starred Damon Wayans. Oh, yeah. It I didn't remember what this was until I saw his name. It was kind of like, oh, I remember that show now. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was his version of a Cosby show or Roseanne style family sitcom. The foibles of, of raising a family at the same time, the New York times was posting this headline, a nation challenged warnings, earlier hijackings offered signals that were missed. This of course is a reference to at that time, the ongoing investigations into how September 11th could have taken place. And as Matt and I talked about in our last episode, the world felt overwhelmingly scary at this Mm -hmm. point. We had just gone through an experience that really kind of shattered our confidence in public safety here in the U.S. And it made for a jarring comparison to the optimism of the broadcast premiere of Enterprise, which looked at a future where Earth in the middle of the 22nd century had basically come together, unified, and put all of those bigger problems behind it. So on now to... One one thing I would want to add to this, just a personal note, this episode aired days before I got married. And my memories of that trip were, of course, it's mere weeks after the hijackings and going into an airport with military just all over the airport's guns everywhere. It was a very surreal experience. So that's my memories of that time frame for this episode. <laughs> yes. For us here in the US, that was a introduction of symbolisms of military strength 
that we were not accustomed to. Mm -hmm. And sadly, for many of us who travel a lot, or for me who lives in New York City, seeing military, well-armed military personnel has become just a matter of fact. Yep. So Matt, do you want to share the synopsis of this episode before we get into the plot? Sure. Uh, the Starship Enterprise encounters an alien ship that is their first chance at first contact, but find hull breaches and no activity aboard. Captain Archer and Sensato and Lieutenant Reed board the ship to investigate, and on the ship, Sato soon faces her fears. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so to go through the plot, I'll be referring to the Wikipedia entry on the show. The show starts, it's May 2151, and the crew of the Enterprise are settling in and slowly getting acquainted with one another. The crew is restless as they have not encountered anything new in the past two weeks. Captain Archer is trying to locate a squeak in his ready room <laughs> and anxious that they have not discovered any worthwhile planets yet. I really thought that this stood out yes. for me as one of the things we talked about in the first episode was that uh, Bakula's performance as Captain Archer seemed a little stiff. Yes. And it seemed like in the first episode, of course, a big role of a pilot. And it was a two-parter, which I think served it well. Um, being two parts gives them the opportunity to do what you need to do in a pilot, which is introduce your characters and also have a story. Mm -hmm. And I thought that the pilot two-parter did that well, except with, with the captain, who seemed a little bit of a, I don't know, a tentpole. Mm -hmm. he's keeping everything up and running around him and introducing all the other characters. He was very often the person who was staying, saying effectively to everybody else, this is such and so, and here's what they're here for. And this one, the simplicity of Archer hanging out with, first of all, hanging out with his dog, hanging out with Porthos, yeah. uh, feeding Porthos cheese that he shouldn't have, yeah. and looking for this squeak. I think these were all very humanizing moments for the captain and the they show. were also really funny it's like that that entire sequence i think was it was so needed for the show because it helps like you said build the character mm -hmm. but one of my first thoughts i actually wrote a note to myself was i forgot how distracting porthos is in this show yeah whenever he's on screen it's just like i don't care about what any character is saying just look at that little face just look yeah. at that little beagle face he's the most adorable little beagle i've ever seen and so a little distracting, just, yeah. just saying. And the first uh, scene where you see the captain talking, he's doing one of his, his captain's logs entries and he's walking around his bed Yeah. and the dog is dancing so excitedly around him because he's holding a piece of cheese in his hand. He's holding food. It's obvious that the dog is lovingly just demonstrating <laughs> in every possible way, trying to get that cheese from this guy yeah. because obviously this dog is an actor dog. This man mm -hmm. is an actor man. They aren't friends. It's not his actual dog. But in that moment, the dog looks like, I love you so much. Yes. And I really enjoyed that. <laughs> so he's hanging out in his ready room, trying to figure out where the squeak is coming from, which again, nice touch. It, it evoked uh, thoughts of, of like old sailing ships mm -hmm. and the things that would have been living within the ship that the crew just would have had to get accustomed to. Mm -hmm. uh, but putting it in the year 2151, it becomes like, how do you put together a spaceship and there's something alive in there or there's something wrong. And if it is something wrong, how drastically wrong is it? It also it's gives a, nice a little touch. hint of space madness. Like they're yeah. also bored. It's yeah. like they're focusing on the weirdest things. So the boredom is the key in that scene because they're, he's literally debating with T'Pol about whether or not they can find anything to go look at. Literally like, is there a gas cloud? Is there any sort of thing happening? And Subcommander T'Pol points out the Vulcans don't select their destination by what piques their interest as they don't share humanity's enthusiasm for exploration. <laughs> that to me was a lot. That's almost the line. Like this Wikipedia entry, that's almost the line that she says. And I hated that. Really? Okay. Why, Why would they go anywhere? At, probably out of necessity. You know but what, I mean? what like, necessity would drive them to do anything? It would be, 
I, I don't understand what would drive Vulcans to, and, and we've seen at this point in the reality of the timeline, we've already seen the first contact story. Yes. Why would they even Vulcans, stop at Earth? Why would they stop at a planet just because they saw a warp engine fire? And it was a phrasing that I understood what they were trying to do. They're trying to show humanity is stumbling forward excitedly, uh, almost like Porthos chasing the cheese, like humanity is streaking forward before they're actually fully ready for what they're mm-hmm. going to experience. Mm-hmm. And to Paul in that moment is the Vulcan mindset. That's more of an anchor, like pull back. Like why are you rushing into this stuff? What's the point of doing that? I understood the reason for the line, but I didn't like the underlying philosophy underneath it because it seemed to be at odds with what the intellectual curiosity of the Vulcans is one of the through lines in the entire Star Trek universe is that Vulcans have an intellectual curiosity that drives them to do things. They don't think of it as an emotion, but it's there. And so this phrasing struck, struck me as being like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, I kind of saw it as, I understand where you're coming from. I, I do agree with you, but there was a there was a nuance I think that was kind of probably missing in the phrasing that I think they were trying to get at, which was the Vulcans have done all this. Right. It's like it's like what are you going to learn by going to the gas giant that we haven't already learned that you already know because all the research has been done. Here's all the stuff. It's like why would you do that? I think that was kind of the I think that framing sentiment. that framing makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I would have appreciated if the phrase had been we don't just go because of what piques our interest, but we go to learn something we don't already know. What's the point of learning what you already know. something you already know. Right. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Reed and Ensign Mayweather are running weapons simulations, which are slightly off. This was another aspect yeah. of the, the show that I thought was really well done. Yes. We, at this point in the Star Trek universe, this of course, Enterprise followed not only the original series, and Next Generation, and Deep Space Nine, but Voyager. And at the end of the the four-year run of Enterprise, one of the responses was, it appears that there's Star Trek fatigue. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the reason that a lot of people thought that the audience didn't respond to this show. I think another reason that the audience didn't respond to the show was because they were doing in some cases like this, a really good job of jumping back far enough that what people think of as Star Trek didn't yet exist. Yep. So here you have a ship whose armament is largely torpedoes. Missiles. And they're missiles. (laughs) They're basically missiles. And they don't work well. No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I think that that's a really nice aspect of the show is that they're practicing firing these things that are, are probably not, they're slow and they're <laughs> probably not going to do a whole lot to anything that they touch and they don't have much else. So I thought that, that was, this was a nice introduction to it's a, it's, it feels in certain cases, uh, like it's the least Star Trek of all the Star Trek programs. But one of my, th- I'm, this is probably one of my favorite moments of the show for the, from the pure perspective of it shows how inadequately prepared we are for what they're about to do. Because as Star Trek fans, you've seen what comes, you know, what's out there. And here comes this little scrappy ship. And it's like, they have the slowest firing missiles you've ever seen. And they're really not that accurate. It's like, it's like they're going to come up against things that are going to whoop their ass. And it's just, it was, I love the aspect of it creates attention for the entire show just from that one scene because it's like wow they're really lacking in what they need for, for and i'm gonna out there. i'm gonna jump forward a little bit jump forward when the first time they try to use one of these weapons not only does it <laughs> not affect not only does it not affect the ship but it ricochets and heads back toward them yes endangering them yeah. and it's it's that level of danger not only are they not prepared for what's out there they're not prepared for what they're bringing with them yes and and to touch again on one more element that this demonstrates clearly in this they've set it up in the pilot the vulcans are standing to the side and basically standing there like mentors who are unwilling to share what they have yes and they are watching humanity try to make its first steps without helping lift and that's a key tension point in the pilot 
clearly that's happened here as well with weapon design. It does raise an interesting question for me, which is up to this point, there's the crew has been put together. They're going out with weapons. They have training around weapon use. They've got sidearms. They've got rifles. They've got all of these things. I'm curious up to this point, what sort of experiences has humanity had? And I wish that the show would reveal a little bit more of that. Right. It is unclear whether humans have accompanied Vulcans on anything. Right. Have they had any first contact experiences sitting beside a Vulcan where the Vulcans are effectively having the first contact moment? Are humans seeing any of that? Have they experienced any sort of combat with, with other species? One of the things that they say in the pilot is that thanks to the first contact with the Vulcans and trying to band together to be able to join the Vulcans by going into space, it's unified humanity. And they talk about how it's unified humanity to the point where there's no conflict. So what is the military experience right. of humanity at this point? Are they in fact prepared for anything? What would the argument be for a humanity to support military buildup and training if there was no conflict on earth? What is the mindset there? What is the philosophy yeah. and what's the driving force behind it? So I feel like they've done a great job of showing how humanity is set up in order to try to push for exploration. But I don't think that they've done as great a job in giving us a sense of what is the overall experience. Yeah. And when you have somebody like Lieutenant Reed, who's a great character because he's, he's the one in this moment who's just like, we need to be ready. Mm -hmm. Something bad is going to happen. Everybody else can be the optimist. I'm going to be ready. And I can't help but think, what is the background there? What is the military experience there for a humanity that is not in conflict with itself? What are his experiences? What has made him that way? It could and have been a very simple, like one or two sentences of him alluding to something that he knows or something like that. Because Or alluding to... Later in the show, I don't want to jump too far ahead. There are things that come up later in the show that kind of... Right. Hint back to that. So it's like they, could I think they needed, I think they needed some of that evidence a little bit earlier yeah. though. It, whatever, yeah. whatever elements are going to come later is, is fine. But I think they needed something in the now. Yes. Even if it's an allusion to after the first contact with the Vulcans, humans had a bad first contact visit from some other species yeah. where there was an event, like some reference to an event that humanity experienced that makes humanity feel like, okay, we've reached an era of peace on our planet, but we can't forget we do need to be prepared. Mm -hmm. Something, some small element that in the story that could have helped under, us understand that. Good point. Moving on to the next scenes. T'Pol picks up a drifting Axonar vessel on the sensors and the Enterprise drops out of warp to investigate. The ship shows evidence of weapons fire and bioscience, but does not respond to hails. Archer is eager to make first contact with a new race, but T'Pol recommends non-interference. After discovering multiple hull breaches, an away team in EV suits is dispatched. The alien crew is soon found dead, suspended upside down with tubes attached to their chests. Spooked. Well, yes. I'd want to bring up one of the things just about the setup of this that I thought was the most Star Trekky of Star Trek of this episode was just that because there was a great debate between the captain and T'Pol about whether they should go on the ship or not. And him of like, it's a first contact thing. We're super excited. We're bored. We've got to do something. There's a morale issue. And her saying, they may not want you there. It's like right. you are going somewhere where you may not even be wanted. So you could be crossing a line. And it was a great debate between the two of them of the pros and cons of what they were deciding to do. And I thought some of what T'Pol was bringing up was so valid. And it was not just her being stubborn. It was like, no, she's bringing up some really good points here that you, you might want to rethink what you're doing because this may not be the smartest move. And that's like classic Star Trek, people having debates and talking about things, which is very, yeah. very Star Trek. And that to me was just like, oh, that's cool. This, is, this feels very Star Trek to me. I agree. And it's, it's in those moments where the best sort of philosophical debate takes place around a hardcore particular moment. Yeah. And the idea that, like you just mentioned, 
I loved the moment when Archer suggests we should do a biosign sweep and her immediate response is that could be seen as an aggressive act. Yes, exactly. And that being something that in Star Trek episodes through every other series, whenever you see a ship, you're with a crew and you've got your crew that you're with and like these are your guys, the moment they get swept with a bioscanner, mm-hmm. their immediate response is like, that's not cool. Yeah. They, like, they that get defensive again and again and like, again yeah, is, and yeah. a defensive posture is taken because yeah. the Starfleet response to, wait a minute, why are they sweeping us? Why are they doing this? Why are they doing that level of a scan? It's an, it's an aggressive thing. It's seen as an aggressive act. And this moment of her pointing out, like you could be doing an aggressive act just because of your curiosity. You got to hold that back. I, I agree with you. I really liked that, that moment. I also really liked that the particulars of the debate revolved around, again, the philosophy of the show when it takes place around a very hard kernel of truth, a fact right in front of them mm-hmm. is when it resonates the the deepest. And they're approaching this ship with a lot of like, why aren't they responding? What is going on? What is happening? And her arguments all make perfect sense. And the tipping point for Archer is when they realize that the venting coming out of the ship, it looks like it's due to damage Mm -hmm. as opposed to it being just a vent coming out with some sort of plasma. The moment that they interpret that as damage, they take that in the same way that, well, look at this beautiful building. Let's visit this building. Is that smoke? It seems to be coming out of that window. Therefore, breaking and entering becomes an act of possible heroism as opposed to just simply breaking and entering. Yep. So they board the vessel. They find the alien crew dead and suspended upside down with tubes in their chests and a mysterious machine pumping away, taking something obviously out of the dead crew. Spooked, the away team retreats to the Enterprise and the Enterprise departs. Dr. Phlox and Sato discuss her fears over the incident and draw parallels between her and the slug being out of its natural environment. That's a a plot line. We should should bring that up because we haven't talked about the slug. (laughs) The slug makes its first appearance in the very first scene in which Sato is bemoaning the fact that the slug appears to be dying. I had huge problems. Mm-hmm. with the slug and with mm-hmm. the Sato storyline mm-hmm. as a whole. Yes. Just some very quick first thoughts. Yeah. A ship going around for exploration to find what it can find, I understand, could involve some taking of exobiology with them in order to study for a future. Yeah. That would be something the science officer and flocks would do. Not the communication It's not officer. something your communications officer would do. Yeah. The suggestion that Sato is the one who decided to take this slug makes zero sense from they a could, yeah. They clear, could have said it was Dr. Like, Fox took it and then she's worried about it because it looks right. like it's dying. It, they could have done it that way. It could have been flipped so easily and it might have been an opportunity not only to reveal something about Sato's character but to re- reveal something about Flox's character because Flox could have been very cavalier in saying like, well, when I took this creature from the planet, I was interested in seeing if it might do X, Y, or Z. It turns out it's not. Instead, it just seems to be dying. Yeah. And her response of how can you be so callous? How can yeah. you do this? You took it away from its home. Instead of her projecting guilt around this storyline, around I took this thing and now I'm killing it. She should have, if they were going to use this as a parallel for her character, it should have been this poor thing was perfectly happy where it was and then you all came along and took it. Which is what happened Because that matches her storyline. Yep. Instead, it's she's feeling guilt over this thing, which again, why is a communications officer going around saying, hey, I see a slug over there, let's take it. Yeah, this for me, that's all I want to share at this moment about that storyline. Yeah, I got more thoughts at the end. (laughs) Teasers, the slug makes a return. Yes, I was going to say that my take on the slug thing, I think you did a good job of pointing out why it was flawed for me. It was just it was such it's a plot line that is so on the nose with her what she's going through. It was just like, I see what they were trying to do, but it came across as very clumsy 
it came yeah. across as very paint by paint by numbers just like it was not an imaginative imaginative way to handle expanding her character um because it was just so uh you could just the parallel it was just so they just beat that drum so hard they yeah. punctured the drum and then threw the drum yeah. in your face and it was just like okay yeah. please and then the drum crushed the slug yeah. and the slug goo rolled down the hill so the enterprise leaves the ship once they've been uh, spooked by what they found effectively what happens is they barely make it you know like they, they're trying to get back into the ship they they get back and they're just like we got to get out of here because whoever is doing this might come back and i thought it was interesting they did make an interesting comparison flocks mentions that the thing that's being taken out of these bodies is similar to human lymph excretions and so they've very quietly i think set up a very nice parallel of yeah something is being harvested from these poor people and you, you have something similar yeah. <laughs> and so therefore harvesting might be uh, a potential for you right eventually as they're they're fleeing archer decides to return to the ship which and that, just that alone there was a the, it was the dinner scene where he decided to do that i just wanted to mention that dinner scene once again Super Star Trek, Star Trekky conversation happens in that that dinner scene with this wonderful debate over did they do the right thing from leaving, and yeah. just watching Archer turn in his head through that conversation of like like yes. damn it no we, we did the wrong thing here and just getting up and walking away from the table and saying we're going back it was a really wonderful debate about what makes humans humans is what they should have done. And so he goes back. To I also, yeah, I also thought it was an interesting moment of the show creators seem to have picked up on earlier Trek dichotomies of the triumvirate of, mm -hmm. you know, you get Kirk, Spock and McCoy, you get, um, something like, you know, Picard might be sitting between data and Riker. Yep. And the conversation between the two others leads the leader to make a decision. Yep. And there's a great moment in the original series episode with Khan when they are at a dinner and Khan is debating with Spock. And then Khan stops and recognizes that what is happening is... Kirk is just observing as Spock looks for weakness. And he makes a point of saying like, that's you're in an interesting position. You've done an interest. You've done a good job there letting him be the one to test me while you just observe for weakness. And I think that that becomes for this, these dinner scenes are that it's usually Archer sitting there mm -hmm. introducing a topic and then watching the two trip and to Paul argue debate. Out. And it's, you know, Trip is the most human, the most, you know, cowboyish of, of all of the, uh, the characters. And even to the point, I think nicely demonstrated in this episode, he wants to go aboard the ship, even though they have no reason for the chief engineer to go aboard that yeah. ship. Yes. And he's making a full on press of like, come on, what if you got, what if you can't get the lights on? Yeah. What if you don't know? What if you can't get something to work and you need me? Yeah. And Archer very realistically saying like, you need to be aboard this ship. This is your job. Yeah. And here you have Trip is, I wanted to come along because I wanted to explore. As much as I love engines, I also want to explore. I want to see things. That's the most human side of mm -hmm. this. And to Paul being at the other side, those dinner scenes take on special importance yes. of what those debates reveal. So they do return and... When T'Pol warns Archer that a ship is approaching, the crew withdraws to Enterprise, but not before shooting the harvest pump. The alien vessel attacks, but the Enterprise cannot return fire accurately due to the problems it's having with the targeting <laughs> scanners, yes. which is I love a great sequence of events. Yeah. Them shooting missiles at the ship and like they're deflecting and exploding and doing nothing to the ship yes. like it's just like them punching going get away from me and nothing's yeah. nothing's happening <laughs> the first one in fact does impact on the alien ship and looks like if you threw a firecracker at a car yes it just goes pop and <laughs> the ship just sits there 
and everybody aboard the Enterprise looks at each other like, uh oh, well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then the second one doesn't even reach the enemy vessel. They use some sort of phased weapon to just shoot it out of space. Yeah. And so at this point, it's almost as if the first missile was allowed to hit the ship because it's almost as if the other species is like, let's see what this does. <laughs> no worries, no concern. A second Axonar vessel arrives and Sato persuades them that the alien ship was responsible. They then attack the hostile ship and the Enterprise is saved. The episode ends with Sato and Phlox releasing the slug on a new planet. So these are three big uh, story moments here. The arrival of the second Axonar ship and the attempts to communicate with it, which are problematic at best. At this point, they have a very rudimentary universal translator. Mm -hmm. In the other series, of course, one of the main mocking points of of Star Trek was always no matter where they go they can communicate seamlessly from with everybody they show up here comes an alien ship oh who are these people I've never seen them before turn on the screens hey what's up not much what's up with you conversation is is not an issue (laughs) and I had I had people that I would watch Star Trek with when I was in college and when I was in grad school and they would mock the show for this and be like, why is it always that way? Why is it always that way? And my response is always the same. It's a TV show. Yes. They need to be able to tell a story and to tell that story, you can't have 30 minutes of it being, okay, how do we figure out how to say tree? Yeah. They came, up with, a ba- with, they the came up with a babble fish and it's like, just go with it. They have a just babble go fish. With it. Just run with it. Yeah. But the key point of this episode in particular is that babble fish doesn't work. Some yes. set some point in 2051. They the don't have Babblefish. Babblefish is, Babble Babble is 1.0. gone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Babblefish is lost to history for them. Yeah. So in this, in this uh, moment, they don't have the universal translator. They have Sato. And Sato is being described as a savant level yes. of being able to pick up languages. Her attempts to communicate are stumbling at best um, at the beginning. She's, she's, trying to figure out how to say things may inadvertently be framing things the wrong way. There's a lot of confusion from the Axonar vessel that shows up leading at one point for the Axonar vessel to basically be clearly accusing the enterprise of having done this thing. Because she's trying and, to use the universal translator to do the discussions. Right. That's She's using the universal translator, which is not doing a great job of it until finally Archer is like, you have to do this. This is why you're here. You need to do this. And she stands up and she makes a point of, of stumbling through the the conversation, trying to figure out how to say these things and is able to say just enough to convince the Axonar captain that the Enterprise is not only not responsible, but in danger. And then the Axonar respond by dispatching the threat. Yeah. I liked all of that. Mm-hmm. I wasn't crazy about the fact that the big bad in this was literally such a ghost, such a boogeyman. It, it shows up. We never see them. N- it's never explained further. Yeah. It's it's not a th- it. I would have appreciated if it had been a threat that we we might have recognized, mm-hmm. like some ship that might have resembled something from some other point in Star Trek history that would be like, oh, that's them. Like if they had used a Gorn ship, right? It, something that would have been like, oh, <laughs> is this humanity's first exposure to this race that we now we already know in the future is this other thing. Definitely not something like don't put a Borg cube or something like that. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting Klingons, but to pull something that is a known threat from somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A Nausicaan ship. Like there have been things that have been done in Star Trek in Star Trek for all of the different incarnations that they could have pulled something that would have spoken enough to say like, oh, that's them. Instead of here's this race that is effectively space vampires. Yeah going around taking fluids from different species, regardless of the fact that the species are intelligent, spacefaring, and they're that dangerous. And then that's all we ever see of them. That's it. I did not like that. Yeah. I I, I agree with you on that. It was very clunky. It was very convenient because it came across as 
the writers of the show wanted to make a, a point with Sato's character development and they wanted to make some other minor points with the character development and all the plot elements were just a convenience to accelerate those forward. And those plot elements were not explained well or used well. and It was very clunky. So I agree with you on that. And I, I think this would be a perfect time to bring up the deeper dive for the episode, which is all around Hoshi. Because in watching this episode, it was kind of like, it was coming through to me of like, could somebody actually could somebody do, do this? What yeah. she is doing? Because it's so unbelievable. Like, oh, you can just hear, you know, a language for an hour or two and then walk away being able to kind of fumble your way through it. Oh, come on. That seems like it's pushing believability. And so I started doing a little deeper dive into this of like, is that possible? And somebody who speaks multiple languages is called a polylinguist or a polyglot. It's somebody who can speak three, four, five, 20 different languages. And I first thing that popped in my head was our aunt. We have an aunt, mm -hmm. Aunt Jean, who was a translator for the Air Force for years. Um, she speaks, how many languages does she speak? It's something like 10 or I think it's like something that. like that. And I know she's taught herself a couple of them yeah. just by, yeah. And she, I remember talking to her about it. I was like, how did you learn all these languages? And she said, well, when you start to learn this language or that language, you start to find commonalities of how conjugations are done and how this is done. So you start, you start to learn these, she said, you start to learn tricks and hacks to kind of like piece things together. And you're like, oh, that sounds kind of something like this. And so you can start to kind of pick it up. And she talked about how she taught herself, I can't remember what language it was, Greek or something. It was like she just taught herself a language because it was very similar to two other languages she knew. And so it is absolutely, in a way, conceivable that something like this could happen. Um, and I, I ended up diving into the uh, the, the show Bible that, um, what was it, Rick Berman? He's mm -hmm. the producer? Yeah, Rick Berman put together. And the, from the Bible, the show Bible, it says in early promotional materials in the Bible, Hoshi Sato stated that she had some kind of, at some point, undergone some kind of surgery to her voice box to allow her to speak different extraterrestrial languages that would not be normally be able to be done by a human being. And that's never expressed in the show, but in the backstory of the character, that's one level they kind of went to. And also from the show Bible, they talked about how and it, she's an expert in exolinguistics because of that. And because she's able to manipulate her vocal cords in ways that humans typically can't, she can emit different ranges of alien sounds. And it makes her a, ability to not only understand the languages, but to be able to try to replicate them in some fashion a little more believable. I wish they had actually stated that in the show. Yeah. Because it's really, when I found this, I was like, that's actually really kind of cool. And in the Bible, it says, give her 10 minutes with a Klingon and she'll be chatting about the weather on Kronos. Right. I found in my research, I found a couple of videos on YouTube about polyglots. There was this great one I found that was, it took four polyglots and it put them with four different Romanian speakers and they gave them one hour of like, can you learn to speak this language in one hour? And they did. And it was kind of like, that's insane that these people don't know how to speak this language. They spend one hour with a native speaker and they kind of fumble through it together. And then at the end of the episode, they had these people on camera saying just, it was like, I spent years, Sean, studying yeah. French and Spanish, and yeah. I can remember La Playa, the yeah. beach. And it's like, that's basically what I remember. And it's insane. But the one thing I kept seeing was polyglots are not geniuses. It has nothing to do with being a crazy smart person. It's just they have learned how they learn and the, right. the hacks and the tactics that they can do to try to memorize and work. And they are people that are drawn to pushing through those boundaries to learn that language. And that's her character. She is obsessed with learning new language. She's, she's right. drawn to it. She loves it. And so after doing my deep dive on, is this even possible? It feels like it is. It feels like it's not like out in some crazy pants world that this, there's no way this could happen. It seems like it could conceivably happen that somebody, a human could try to learn an alien language in a very rudimentary way within right. hours. And they show her in this episode spending great deals of time trying to figure out this language. So at the end of the episode, when she stands up and fumbles her way through pleading this alien to help them, it's like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm with you now. Where the right. first time I watched the episode, I was like, oh, come on. 
Yeah. Oh, she's learning to stand. She's, she's their babble fish. It's like, there's no way it's like, Oh yeah. no, they show her struggling. And it's like, it, it seems a little more believable. Based on everything you've, you've laid out in your deeper dive. I, I agree with you that it's a great story element now. Yes. But it was not earned no. in the episode. Nope. And it could have been earned in a couple of very subtle ways. Like you mentioned that they do show her working on learning the language and, and those parts were interesting. And there was one aspect where she, upon the very first time she hears the recording of the acts in our language, she says something like, Oh, it sounds like their verb conjugation is bimodal. She says something like that. Yeah. So it's like, she's already like the shortcut that you're talking about is already at work. Like she's, within minutes being able to pick out things like, oh, you already have been able to recognize the verb usage in this language, mm-hmm. which that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that you're talking about. What they needed to do, and I agree with you, all this background information, the the story Bible information is fascinating and would have added so much yes. to yep. her as a character. And I would have suggested in revising the story, like we talked about the, the slug already. And I suggested if the doctor had taken the slug, then you would have had a clearer parallel of, Oh, this poor slug is like me. We were both happy where we were. And then we were ripped away from our home to be here and mm-hmm. it's killing us. The conversation with Dr. Flocks could have involved and did already in the version that aired, but the nuance that I'm describing, the change I'm describing could have involved her saying this slug can't survive here. And Flock saying, Oh, but things can adapt in remarkable ways. And I would think you of all people would recognize that given what you've done to yourself. Yes. Yep. In order for you to experience the linguistic tricks that you hoped to do, you had to do something to your own voice box to allow you to actually be able to do those things. You adapted, you survived beautifully. So maybe this slug can do the same thing. Yep. Put that in the first scene. Yeah. <laughs> then by the end, when she stands up and is doing these things, we've already been clued into, she's kind of got that superhero talent. Yes. We need to be, given those moments in order to believe that final shot of her being able to stand up and stumble her way through it. And if they had done that, I think that whole thing and her character as a whole would come across as less whiny because one of the problems with her character is all she's exhibiting is reluctance and hesitance. If the doctor had revealed that she had done something to herself to allow her to more fully enact the linguistic tricks she was hoping to do, that would be an act of bravery. Mm -hmm. That would have been a demonstration of like, oh, this is a person who put literally her body on the line in order to do a thing that she thought was that important. It would have given her that heroic leap, even if it was in the past, it just saying like, here's her heroic leap. She's afraid to be in space. She doesn't like going in the spacesuits. She, she, she's the one who screams and she says of herself, I screamed like a child when we saw those bodies with the tubes. And, and just as a quick aside, I want to go back. I thought that the horror aspects of that scene of finding the bodies was beautifully well done. It was very well done. And that's part of the reason why I'm so disappointed in the closing of that interaction with the alien race and in their off. draconian spaceship, which looks like a vampire bat. Yeah. They show up, they get run off, they blow up. The, the horror aspect never gets full circled. There's yep. never a moment where anybody actually sees this species as dark and threatening in the way that it should have. There's no looming thing in the corner that brings that horror aspect back at the end of the episode. It turns it completely into the Sato show of can she figure out how to conjugate the verbs in time? Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a a misfire. I agree. So at the end, they are able to communicate with the Axanar. The Axanar are able to help them. I did like the fact that at the end of the episode, they're basically being saved. Mm -hmm. 
Like the whole thing of a heroic exploration, stepping off into the unknown, and they need to be pulled out of the fire. Yeah. Goes back again to something I mentioned earlier. What is humanity's experience? Like up to this point, it's, it's, even if it's just revealed that the Vulcans have literally just left humanity to stand on their own planet and stumble their way into space. Yeah. Like that information would have been helpful to know like, okay, this, they're totally unprepared because at this point it just really does look like they're running into every burning building they see (laughs) and they're not stopping to, to think anything about any of it. But to quickly close on the final scene, Sato and Phlox release the slug on a new planet. Sato had suggested to Phlox that she was thinking, like, I know that if I asked the captain to take us back to the planet where we found the slug, we'd never do that because that would be, I mean, it's literally been two weeks of flying in a straight line through space. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're not going to turn around and fly two weeks back through empty space just to drop off the slug. So they find a new planet. Another story element that Sean had a lot of trouble with. The history of humanity is filled with us taking a species from one place mm. to another place and it royally screwing things up. What, what, do you, what could you possibly be talking about, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> On the, oh the negative side, uh, a lot of the history of Australia. Yeah environmental problems there created by the fact that some of the early settlers in Australia brought along rabbits because they liked eating rabbit and there's no natural predator for the rabbits. So the rabbits population exploded, which they still deal with today. Rabbits are still a major impact on the environment. They destroy farms. They dig huge burrows in order to fight the rabbits. The Australians introduced another animal to hunt the rabbits, and then that animal became an environmental concern. So dominoes falling just throughout the history of settled Australia. Yeah. On the other side, there's a great YouTube video that you can look for, which is how wolves change the direction of a river. And this happened in Yosemite, where there was a section of the park where they reintroduced wolves. And what happened over a span of years was the river actually changed its location because the wolves hunted certain animals like rabbits, smaller mammals that kept the vegetation down. When the vegetation grew back, certain animals returned, certain insects, which brought certain birds, which then increased the pollination of certain types of trees, which then drew back beavers and the beavers chewed down the trees, creating dams, which then changed the direction of the river. It's a Rube Goldberg device on a yes. biosphere. So <laughs> the introduction of one animal, one species into a could thing, radically could change radically change it. They're bringing a slug, which could be, who's to say that it needs a partner to sexually reproduce? <laughs> what if this is a planet that in the Kirk era or the Picard era, they come back and they're like, what's with all these friggin' slugs? <laughs> <laughs> There's slugs everywhere on this planet. This place is disgusting. They have just introduced an alien species to a planet for no reason other than to keep that one individual slug alive so that the communications officer who's responsible for having taken the slug in the first place would feel better, feels less guilt. Yeah. I hated that story element. It could have been a Futurama episode where they fast forward, you know, a thousand years. Yeah. And then there's a this thousand slug species, years in the future. A slug species <laughs> yeah. about to take over the universe. It's like, yes. Know, it's kind of like, what were they thinking? Yeah, yes. I agree. It was, it was yeah. a very weak, her entire plot line was just, it was all plot devices that were poorly executed to try to get us to know her character. And it was just not well executed. Yeah. And it's, and like I said, if it was introduced instead that she had within her heroic leaps that she had already taken. She yeah. already had demonstrated. If that was revealed, then Archer's need of her in particular would have made more sense. Her closing scene of being able to get the Axonar ship away would have made more sense. And there could have been, you know, I don't like the slug storyline, but if you've got it in there and you need to wrap it up, it could have, it could have been one of two directions. 
flocks could report to her that good news, it looks like this slug is responding to this nutrient that I'm giving it. It seems Mm -hmm. like I figured out how to help it adapt yeah. so that she can feel like, ah, yes, adapting. We're doing like, that's the very Star Trek ending. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like (laughs) I'd like to help you, you know, help it adapt because I think I've, I've figured out a thing or two about that. That's a very Star Trek ending. The alternate ending, darker ending, but also I think one that could have been told in this show, which is Enterprise is a little bit different from the other Star Trek shows in that it doesn't always hit the Star Trek moments intentionally. Mm-hmm. You know, the like fire that torpedo and it bong, ricochets off the ship. That's not Star Trek. That's Enterprise. You could have had a darker ending where she reports to the sick bay and he reveals that the slug has died. Yeah. And she's like, not everything can adapt. It's difficult. Change is hard. And I have learned something from the passing of this thing, but I've also learned something about myself from the experience we just had. Yep. And that's a harder ending, but I think it's also one that could have had a place in the show. So if you want the very Star trek ending or you want the darker ending, either one of those would have made sense. What doesn't make sense is a ship in the, 20, in the tw- year 2151 being willing to drop a slug on an alien planet just because the communications officer is like, I'm sad. <laughs> that didn't work. Yeah. Agreed. So next time on Backtracking, we're going to be talking about the episode Strange New World. Matt, any predictions about what Strange New World will entail i think it's going to be about a world that's a little strange Mm. that's a bold prediction yeah we'll see if matt is right if any of our listeners want to weigh in on what they think strange new world might entail and please no spoilers no spoilers drop them in the comments below you can reach out to us through the contact information which is in the show notes And if you're watching this on YouTube, obviously, it's directly below this video. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.